The Gist is sponsored by Sherry's Berries. Treat your mom to something sweet this Mother's Day with a gift from Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate start at $19.99. Visit berries.com, click on the microphone, and use the code GIST. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com and the promo code GIST. And by the Netflix original documentary series, Chef's Table. Go inside the lives and kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary talents. Directed by David Gelb, the creator of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. All episodes now streaming on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 27th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So released on Friday was the Shriver Report, an insight into the 21st century man. I'm that. One of the things that this survey came up with is that four in nine men confessed it's harder to be a man today than it was for his father. I don't know, maybe that guy was drunk or had a union job. But is it? Is it hard? I was asked this question, and I started thinking of this question. I'm going to lay on you my inside of the day. You ready? It's an analogy. You won't know where I'm going, or maybe you will, but here I go. So I go to the gym pretty often, you know, maybe five times a week, three or four of them. I lift weight. And the lifting of the weight is something I kind of enjoy. I've gotten okay at it. I'm strong. I guess you would say that I'm strong. And what I do is I, I put barbells on a rack and lift those barbells above my head, let's say. And then one day, it dawned on me that they changed the definition of strength. Like, that used to be strength. And for 20-something years, I've been doing that because that's what they told me strength was. But now, strength is your core and this yoga stuff, right? And flexibility. All of a sudden, they changed the definition of strength on me, and here I am with almost no flexibility but the ability to lift large leaden weights above my head. And then it hit me, this is an exact analogy for what's happened to not just the actual literal definition of strength, but the symbolic definition of strength. This is the exact analogy for what's happened to the American male. Our definition of strength has changed. And it used to be to lift the burden to hoist things, to carry things with you, maybe for others because they couldn't, you didn't think they could. Now, the definition of strength is about flexibility. It's sometimes knowing when not to carry too much or being able to address different situations at once. Not always the straight ahead, I'm going to carry this on my back like a beast of burden. And so that's why, I don't know if it's harder or easier, but it has certainly changed to be a man and to live up and to be the epitome of what it means to be a strong man in the 21st century. And that's Mike's possibly tortured analogy, yet insight of the day. On the show today, I spiel about the notion of caring about certain victims of the Nepalese earthquake, but pointedly not others. And I spork full it up on the burning issue of burning your mouth by using the wrong spoon. But first, we play one question, one question only, with a Scotsman. The UK is having their election in two weeks, and incumbent Prime Minister David Cameron, he's not doing so well, probably win, he'll have to form a coalition. But the Labour Party opposition, Ed Miliband, he has outperformed his terribly low expectations, also not doing so well. So who is doing well? The Scottish National Party. They lost the vote for Scottish independence, but they really solidified their standing as a party, and they've just eclipsed the Scottish Labour Party, and they are the dominant force on the left, and the left is dominant in Scotland. I mean, they're so dominant that Englishmen, Welsh women, 
the Manx are heard to ask, hey, can we vote for the Scottish National Party? No, no, you cannot. You're not Scottish. But what fascinates me most about the Scottish National Party is not even how well they're doing, but how different they are from other national parties, other national movements, especially throughout Europe. The Scots are not at all anti-immigrant. They are, if anything, very wary of militarism. Nationalism in Scotland means expanding the social safety net. So this is different from the Tea Party in America, to which I say, huh. So joining me now is John Curtis. He's a professor at Strathclyde University. Hello, Professor Curtis. Good afternoon. Okay, here's my one question, one question only for you. In the rest of the world, certainly in America, the parties that lay claim to the title of nationalists, they're often marked by wariness of immigrants, conservative social values, religiosity. Like surveys have shown that 38% of those who are going to vote in the Republican primaries are self-identified evangelical Christians. But this is not the flavor of Scottish nationalism. Are these sentiments all but unknown in Scotland? Uh, they're nothing like as crucial. You have to remember that amongst uh, uh, advanced industrial societies, the United States is the exception rather than the rule. The, the degree to which, uh, A, uh, the people um, uh, do actually attend religious services and B, um, allow their politics to be influenced by this is, you know, the United States is now very much at the high end of the spectrum. Uh, Scotland is now predominantly a secular society. There are vestiges of historic ethnic stroke religious differences because much of the Catholic population in Scotland, which is about one-eighth of the population, basically traces its roots back to immigration from Ireland in the 19th century. And the truth is that you can still see that those from a Catholic background, even when you take into account other variety of characteristics of them, are rather more likely to vote Labour and less likely to vote Conservative. But they're not doing so because the Labour Party is particularly conservative on social issues. Actually, um, all the political parties in uh, Scotland, frankly, can be regarded as relatively liberal on these issues. And Scotland has, of course, been, again, has joined the ranks of those countries that, for example, has introduced same-sex marriage within just the last 12 months. And that was something that was supported by all of the parties, including even uh, the Scottish Conservatives, whose leader, by the way, is an openly lesbian uh, politician. And again, across not just in Scotland, but across British politics as a whole, for the most part, social issues such in particularly above all abortion have been issues that have long been taken out of the party battle. And the legislation, for example, that we have in the United Kingdom on abortion has always been promoted for, for the most part by so-called private members legislation with MPs voting on the basis of conscience rather than following any kind of party line. OK, thanks. You're welcome. This year, give mom the last bite with Sherry's Berries, a good gift for Mother's Day. And for my listeners only, Sherry's Berries is offering giant. That's giant with a G. And it's a deserved G because these berries are, well, let me, let me explain what they are before I explain why it's a deserved G. Freshly dipped strawberries. It starts at $19.99, over a 40% savings. You go to berries.com, you click on the microphone, you type in my code GIST. These are giant strawberries, which is really good for a few reasons. One, strawberries are good. Giant strawberries mean more goodness of strawberries, but they're also a palette, if you will, for chocolate, be they white chocolate, be they dark chocolate, be they the chocolate covered with nuts. We had an array of these berries shipped to our house. And just that alone, shipping foodstuffs in refrigerated packs in the mail is a cool thing. 
you'll feel cool or the person you send them to will feel cool. Oh my God, what is this? They open it up. There's an ice pack. It's cool to the touch. The ice pack helpfully says, do not eat this ice pack, which is really necessary for two reasons. One, we don't want you to eat the ice pack. Two, it'll, it'll save more room for the delicious berries. Again, here's what you need to do to get these freshly dipped berries starting at $19.99. Use the offer code The Gist. You go to B E R R I E S dot com. You click on the microphone at the top right corner, type in Gist. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and enter my code Gist. Food. It's good. But to eat it, you need utensils. Dan Pashman, host of The Sporkful, a podcast distributed by WNYC, thinks about all of this, the whole universe of the eating experience. Dan, what is it? It's it's not for foodies, it's for eaters? That's what we say, yes. Yeah. And so sometimes it's for such dedicated eaters that it's for people who bypass utensils, but not today. We will be civilized. And I specifically wanted to talk to you about an experience that happens to me quite often regarding soup spoons. Okay. Do you think a lot about soup spoons? I think a lot about all utensils. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so here's the thing. I go to D'Agostino's, and we have some soup in this D'Agostino's bowl, and they give you a certain spoon. Here is the spoon. It's wrapped, which is nice when they have utensils wrapped, but I'm going to give you the spoon that they give me. Now, it's a black spoon. Plastic. Plastic. Looking at it, anything strike you as unusual? It seems very deep. It is deep, and this is my point. Let us, we have in front of us a light cream of dumpling soup. Actually, I didn't use the uh, D'Agostino soup. I have Progresso soup, which means it's mostly salt, but I like it. Okay, so I'm going to go. <laughs> you're, and, doing, you're doing the chicken and dumpling. Yeah, because this is the really hot one, and I want to demonstrate my point. Okay, please. All right. I'm narrating. You're slurping. Um, it's good. Yeah, yeah. It's I good. like a nice hot soup. Exactly. Yeah. This is a temperature I like, which is you, sh- you should need to blow on it. Go ahead. Go for a taste, too. And then you tell me that I'm not an insane person here. Basically, okay. the gist is a, my year-long effort to prove that I'm not, I'm not an insane person. <laughs> Bringing so, in another expert to testify but, right. in favor of Mike's sanity. Food expert Dan <laughs> Pashman. What do you think about these spoons? They're very deep. And therefore? It'd be one thing if they were deep and wide. They're sort of disproportional. Yeah. So they're deep, but they're narrow. Yeah. I see pros and cons. Okay. The nice thing about it yeah. is that, so you have this cluster of the stuff of the soup, the chicken mm-hmm. and the vegetables, mm-hmm. and then you have your broth. Mm-hmm. If you have a spoonful that's got chicken and broth, but you just want a little bit of broth, it's easier to get just broth mm-hmm. because the deep the depth of the spoon holds the chicken in place. Right. However, yeah. when you want to get a more filling bite. Mm-hmm. It's all about the bite. That's when you run into trouble yeah. because it's the, the the chicken sticks down there, and it's hard. It, it's yeah. hard to you can't run your upper yeah. lip. Yeah, because when you use a spoon, you really your upper lip should be able to press against the entire interior of the spoon. So as you pull the spoon and out, then the slurping will slurp up everything in it, not just the surface liquid stuff. That's right. Yeah, it's like a fat hit at the bottom of a jacuzzi. <laughs> The only way that you could get all the soup out of this especially deep spoon, let me see if I can do it even with a not hot soup. Mm. I cannot do it. Yeah. And you you know, you don't really think about, okay, you, you take the spoon. What are you really doing? You're doing one of two things. You're either sipping from one end, which is a laborious process and maybe a little harmful if it's very hot, or you're actually putting your lip on the other hand end and sort of skimming the top and gulping 
but if the spoon is too deep, there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant because you, you cannot, I mean, you would need a, a, some sort of an upper lip implant. Yeah. For your upper lip to be able to extend yeah. all the way down to the bottom the of this spoon. The spiny anteater has one, but not we humans. Maybe that's D'Agostino's target market. <laughs> what other utensil-related items have you brought to me? The makers of this device have been on me for a while to feature them, and, and, and despite all of my initial reservations, they, they really won me over because of their uh, hilarious, corny web videos and just the, the possibilities. I'm not, I'm not convinced, okay. but I am optimistic okay. that this device could really be something all for right. society. We... Behold the trong. The trong. Bum, 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 This bum. is a trong. Yeah. You have a trong, and um, it, the, the, the term trong is kind of a takeoff on tong. Yeah. But try, like, try, like three, three, because yeah. it's like a three-pronged trong uh-huh. that's tiny and goes over your fingertips. Sure. Oh, okay. I, I don't know if, uh, Mike, you're a better radio professional than I am. Can you describe to listeners exactly right. what this looks like? Okay. Make the peace sign. Now extend your thumb. Now touch all three together like you're doing the quack, 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 quackity sound. That's right, with okay. three fingers. Right. Now imagine if plastic is coating all your fingers. So the Fingertips. Bottom, the all, all your fingertips Your are fingertips covered. are plastic. So now you could grab things with the trong. All right. So the promise of the trong, the idea is that it will give you the dexterity yeah. of being able to eat with your hands. Uh-huh. Because really, like, you know, on the Sporkful, I'm all about bite composition. Yeah. There really is no better way to compose your perfect bite with your perfect ratios in the perfect order than to just get in there with your hands. All right. The trong should give you the dexterity of using your hands without ever having to actually touch the food. All right. In fact, in one of the trong web videos, the guy sticks his hand into a bag of horse manure, uh-huh. then puts the trongs on that same hand and uses that hand to eat. Are we eating with one of the horse manure trongs no, right now? No, no. I, there's no, no horse manure has been used in the taping of this segment. All right. But I have here for you... This is one of the, the one of the challenging foods out there to eat with your hands without getting messy. Chicken wings. Chicken wings. All right, I've grabbed the flat. Uh, your technique is so poor, Mike. I don't know that I'm doing it the wrong way, you. but I'm also doing it the way that ninety something percent of Americans do it. Those who haven't seen your video about. I'm separating the bones. Mm-hmm. So far, I've managed to do it without. I mean, I, I, I'm doing a high level maneuver right here. Mm-hmm. If I hold the single chicken wing bone, I can hold it like a rib without ever touching it mm-hmm. and go corn on the cob style around mm-hmm. the outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I will say this. It's a little like eating with mittens, <laughs> but it's a little like eating with mittens. I mean, I've denuded this chicken bone. Would you say I've gotten to all the meat? No, absolutely. You have gotten all the meat I've off gotten all bone. the meat. It wasn't that hard, and my fingers are clean. And, and I should add, I mean, I'm, as I'm thinking about this, Mike, I mean, you and I have never used trongs before. I would think... If you used them every meal for a couple days, you'd probably get pretty slick. You know, because the trongs don't cover all of the fingers, there's still some stuff, a little bit of stuff on the finger. But, you know, you just need one small napkin to wipe them off. And I will say this. I would not go out and buy trongs, but if I was at a chicken place and they were there, I would definitely use them. They do have a couple good selling points. You don't get that dirty. Your fingers don't get in the other people's food. Sometimes some of these spicy wings could get under the nails and cause quite a little bit of a burn. Then you go rub your eyes. Yeah. You're in big trouble. And, you know, if someone said, I invented this thing called chopsticks, 
and you tried to use them for the first time, they would it would have no appeal. You would not say why it would you would say why would I need chopsticks? This thing, these trunks have more of a natural appeal. So I think they're a pretty good product actually. Mike, what is the sound of one trong tronging? <laughs> oh cute. They're cute. <laughs> With trongs on a first date, what do you think? I, I you know what? I think it's a conversation starter. Yeah. You bust them out of your purse? Yeah, totally. Oh, my God. My heart's thumping already just at the thought of it. <laughs> I, I think that, that like, if you, t- if you busted out trongs on a first date, mm-hmm. what it is is it's a, you're finding out for sure, like, yeah. this person, you're making a statement. Yeah. Right off the bat, this is who I am. Yeah. Love it or leave it. It basically either leads to no second date or a very sustained long-term relationship. <laughs> you had me at trung low. <laughs> Dan Pashman on the correct utensils, be they new ones, old ones, something new, something borrowed, something strong. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mike. This episode of The Gist is brought to you by the Netflix original documentary series Chef's Table, which offers viewers the opportunity to go inside the lives and kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary talents. It's directed by David Gelb, the creator of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. What makes a chef? Is it signature dishes? Is it kitchen experience, culinary training, and personal heritage, or something else? Step behind the scenes for an up-close look at the amazing journey of six culinary superstars from around the world. With Chef's Table, a new documentary series from Netflix. Each of the six episodes features an acclaimed chef from a different region of the world, Ben Shuri from Melbourne, Australia, Magnus Nilsson from Jorpen, Sweden, Francis Maldman from Buenos Aires, Argentina, Nikki Nakayama from LA, Dan Barber, NYC, and Massimo Batura, Modena, Italy, all episodes now streaming on Netflix. And now the spiel, compassion, condemnation. We've seen the devastating news out of Nepal. We have been shocked. Actually, 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 they have been shocked. They have been devastated. We have responded with the emotional analogs of those conditions. Another emotional response, a human one, is to identify with those who are most identifiable. Now, would that it were that every other homo sapien were just as identifiable as your particular tribe? But that's not how life has worked since this species developed a thing called civilization. So we identify with our tribesmen or those with a shared experience. And the news, the American news, counts the dead in this manner, as heard on NBC Nightly News yesterday evening. The destruction there is immense. The powerful quake flattened sections of Kathmandu and triggered avalanches at Mount Everest just as the climbing season there begins. More than 1,500 people, including at least one American, are believed dead, and that number is climbing. The BBC reported on the number of Brits killed. The Indian newspapers do the same thing with their countrymen. I will report that the death toll of Americans is now, as I speak these words, four. The death toll of Nepalese, 4,000. So to care about the four or to care about the 20 or so who died climbing Everest, again, I say that that's human, but others say it's shameful. I've seen condemnation that pity is being extended to the Westerners at the expense of the Nepalese. That's the construction. I'll pick one tweet. Daniel Goldberg, who's on the faculty of the Brody School of Medicine at ECU, East Carolina University, attorney, historian, public health ethicist. He tweets, as someone who works in priority setting in public health, I want to declare that top priority 
In Nepal, earthquake is death not the fate of the mostly Western climbers on Everest. The sentiment was echoed by many who decried the focus on the climbers at the exclusion of the common Nepalese. People who angrily wrote comments to news organizations, you should not be doing interviews with climbers. There are Nepalese, common everyday Nepalese, who are suffering much worse. So a few things. First, compassion's not a finite resource. Despite that loathsome phrase, compassion fatigue, anyone who expends so much compassion that they lose the ability to have compassion might not have actually been dealing in true compassion in the first place. Second, I think it's pretty unlikely that anyone who cared or expressed care about the dead climbers or the climbers who are in peril also didn't care about the 4,000 dead Nepalese. I mean, the news media had their priorities straight. Newscasts and cable shows didn't lead with the climbers. They used scenes in Kathmandu, and the climbers were a sidebar. That's how it should have been. I care about the climbers and the Sherpas and the shopkeepers and the beggars and the farmers and everyone who saw buildings crumble in Kathmandu or the earth open up in the countryside beside it. And I would warn the scolds, the tweeters who castigate us to not care about this group of unfortunates because that group of unfortunates is more unfortunate. I would tell them yours is a losing game. You will always be outranked on the hierarchy of concern. Right? You who care about the Nepalese victims? Well, you know, the Syrian civil war has been going on for three years and a month, and the UN says 220,000 people have died, and that's probably a conservative estimate. So does that mean that Nepal rates only 140th of your compassion? No, of course not. Right? Just as the tragedy, it's a real tragedy. Dead people, people who are with broken bones and trying to evacuate from base camp at Everest, you can't norm their lives for the affluence that they've had beforehand. When CNN interviewed a hiker trying to survive at base camp, some heard white privilege, right? Some heard myopia. I heard a story of struggle and humanity. As I said, your time atop that hierarchy of concern, your moment of righteousness will be fleeting. It's a losing game to accuse other people of caring incorrectly. Their concern is not your concern. And guess what? Your concern, that incisive tweet, that tisk clearly heard across the subreddit, doesn't actually rebuild a thing. There isn't a natural disaster these days that doesn't provoke exactly this kind of condemnation. The eagerness to impart the lesson, your focus is on the wrong thing. Your sympathies are aimed in the wrong place. Let me correct you. Let me lambaste you for misaligned mourning. It's compassion splaining. But I understand it. Twitter is an opinion machine. Being cross at Twitter for not facilitating in-depth reactions is like being mad at a chicken for not flying. I'm sure I have engaged in a, how can you people care about this and not about that kind of ruminating myself? For instance, big one, one that always comes up whenever you see an outpouring about animal victims of a tragedy to a greater degree than you see an outpouring for human victims of a tragedy, it makes me shake my head. But sometimes, you know what? Sympathizing with animals and not humans, that's actually also a human reaction too. As is, as I've said, tribal identification. Now I'll throw out another one, another human way to react. Finding a villain to vent at in the face of a random tragedy. It gives you meaning, makes you feel a little bit better. So in that way, by providing that pin cushion, the media is actually doing its job.
And that's it for today's show. Disagree with me all you want on Twitter. We're at Slate Gist or on my Twitter personally. We're at Pescami, P-E-S-C-A-M-I. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. Producer Andrea Salenzi is understandably experienced. Managing producer Joel Meyer, he's plausibly a veteran. Executive producer Andy Bowers is logically, and I mean just logically speaking, he's an old saw, but they might be giants. Where the dial-a-song number is 844-387-6962. And you guys listening to the show, you're the last people who have to know the dial-a-song number. Because that's what they might be giants used when they were starting out. They used an answering machine. And you could dial that number. And you could listen to that answering machine. And that answering machine is still there. And that number is still attached to that answering machine. But they also have a website. And they also have a complex machinery to roll out their weekly dial-a-song in 2015. The hub of that machinery is this show, The Gist. We are an embrace of the modern in a way that can only be described as impossibly new. Mm-hmm.